good morning to all of you. Thank you to all who were either eating here last night or serving or baking. No, um, when we gathered together for the meal at the end of the evening, there were seemed like an army of volunteers who came out to make last night possible at the chicken pie supper. So thanks again. I know many guests who came through our doors expressed uh, just their sense of, of warmth and joy and uh, the pleasure of, of having your hospitality extended to them. So thank you for making that possible. One other fun event I wanted to relay to you from this past week. A few of us were part of... Uh, and a new place fundraiser. You know, a new place, former the, formerly the Burlington Emergency Shelter, they have their, I think this was their fifth annual rock, paper, scissors tournament. And so you'll be proud to know that Jericho Congregational Church is now the reigning champion. We took home first place. So you can, you can tell people, yeah, our church is uh, basically the state champ at uh, rock, paper, scissors. So I hope that's a boast you can enjoy this, this coming week. It was a lot of fun. There is a, a boast that the Apostle Paul is making of his own in the book of Ephesians. And as we've been moving through this letter of Paul, the first chapter that we've covered over the last month or so is this great boast. It's this great claim Paul is making about the nature of reality. And he says in that first chapter that there's an unseen power that's at work, that's, that's changing the very fabric of the universe. And Paul says it's the heavenly power of God being exercised in and through the person of Jesus Christ. And at the end of our message last week, we read these few verses, Ephesians 1, 20 and 21. Paul said, God's great power was displayed, was demonstrated when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. That's kind of a summary statement of what happens in all of chapter 1. Where Paul says this, this great power of God is exercised, is demonstrated by causing three things to take place. He says, first, the, the love and the power of God have caused Jesus, the Son, to go into death, into the tomb. Secondly, the power of God raises Jesus Christ back to life. He resurrects Jesus in his power. And thirdly, he takes his son as he's resurrected him and causes him to ascend, right, to a place of glory, to a place of heavenly authority, where he's reordering and remaking all things. So Paul says, death, resurrection, and ascension. That is fundamentally the Christian story. It's the gospel in a nutshell. And he says that because of these three things, these three realities, that our world is now a different place. But this morning we might still wonder at Paul's claim. Right? Is that actually 
true. Is, is Christ really the reigning king of heaven and earth? Right? How do we know that this boast is in fact true if we can't see that kingdom with our own eyes today? We might ask, well, where's the evidence, Paul? Let me tell you a, a different kind of story. At the end of 1915, Einstein, at that time still quite a young man, made his own incredibly bold claim at that time in history. And in 1915, he claimed to have insight into the way gravity operates. He claimed to to have perceived something of its hidden reality. And Einstein's claim, his boast, was that gravity wasn't just simply an attractional force, but that, that that force was actually exerted by uh, creating a curvature of time and space itself. That that's, that's what gravity fundamentally was. And to explain his ideas in 1915, he presented a paper that, that uh, unpacked his theory of general relativity. Now, of course, no one could actually see what Einstein was trying to describe. And there was some skepticism initially about his claims. But Einstein argued that if his theory were true, if he was telling the truth, then we could actually predict, we might not be able to see gravity, but we could predict how other objects in the universe would behave as a result. And in particular, he said that we could make predictions about the behavior of light as it passed by objects of great mass, like stars, or or later physicists... uh, hypothesized, and then discovered these these things called black holes. And and according to his theory, if if this was true, that space and time would be bent so uh, immensely by these objects that light itself would would seem to to change course. Einstein's theory was eventually validated by our observation and the evidence that we can see. And he validated this this kind of unseen reality by pointing us to a change that's been made in the world around us, in the behavior of light itself. As we move into Ephesians 2 today, Paul is taking a similar tack with his evidence. And he says that in order to validate all the claims he's just made about God doing these things in the unseen and heavenly realms in Jesus... That that we can see, in fact, that this is the case, that this is true by pointing our attention at one particular place in our world. And Paul says that place is right here. That place is the local church, the gathered body of Christ. I don't know if you think about it that way, but every time we gather together, whether it's on Sunday morning or in some other respect in community during the week... We bear the marks of of this great work of God. We bear the marks of Jesus' death, his resurrection, and his ascension. That's not just the story of Jesus. Paul will say that is the story of the church. He says that we are living evidence that these things are true. And that's... Essentially because the church is is a family, it's a reality that shouldn't have come into existence. The church is 
is a people of God, a family of God that we cannot be born into, we cannot marry into. And honestly, none of us truly sort of have the the privilege to claim to, to belong to this family in our own right. Except that something along the way has happened. The same something that happened to Jesus, Paul says. The power of God that goes into death only to bring forth resurrection life and ascension. And so if we take a look at ourselves, we take a look at our own story this morning, Paul says that we should be able to observe that same power working in us now. If you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, I'm going to look at verses 1 through 7 this morning. Let me pray for us as we begin. Lord, we thank you that we're here together as a people. We thank you that there is a new reality at work in us and in our world. Pray you give us eyes to see and hearts to worship you as the one who has made these new things possible. Pray that as I teach, may the words of my mouth, may the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. So we're picking up here at the first verse of chapter 2. Remember that chapter 1 has been this this long stream of praise, of, of exaltation, of concentrating on the story of who God is, of what he has done in Christ. But as we move into chapter 2, the the drama of Paul's letter changes the object of its focus. Chapter 2 is all about the people of God. Chapter 2 is all about the story of the church. Look with me at verse 1. Paul says, as for you, as for the, the people in these churches he's writing to, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. To begin telling the story of the church, Paul chooses a pretty unflattering place to start. Verse 1, as for all of you, as for the people of God, as for the church of Jesus Christ, you were dead, Paul says. You were an independent transgressive, disobedient bunch of people. He says, in fact, before you and I were in Christ, that phrase he uses so often in verse 1 or chapter 1, before we were in Christ, we were like walking corpses. The word for death there is is taken from the, the word for a cadaver, a corpse. Our story as a people begins with death. 
Verse 2 doesn't get much prettier. Paul says, before we were a people of God, you and I were not only dead, but we were part of a different family. A family not living under the reign of Jesus Christ, not energized and, and propelled forth by the Spirit of God, he says, but instead a people captive, slaves, to the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Slaves to a different kind of spirit who enabled and who energized our disobedience. Now this is Paul's sort of shorthand way of speaking about Satan, about the devil. About the the dark powers of the world and the spiritual realm. And he says that that we were brought into and, and sort of bound into slavery under that spirit. And in doing so, we began to feed the passions of our flesh. And we became his children. Children of that dark, oppressive spirit. So if you look at verses 1 through 3, they they provide this first chapter in the story of the church. And they describe a situation that's not only depressing, it's seems downright hopeless. There is no way out of this. Humanity has been poisoned and controlled by the power of death, by the power of Satan. We're described as, as prisoners. Our fate seems insurmountable. It's like there's this monstrous foe holding us in its grip. I think the question for us in a church pew on a Sunday morning is, is, can you remember living in that place? I think if, if we're honest, we reckon with ourselves, if we can remember clearly, none of us meet Jesus as, as wise, virtuous people that, that possess life in and of ourselves. In fact, the place where anyone meets Jesus is a place haunted with death. Right? Places of fear, places of pain, places of brokenness, places of addiction, places of despair or anxiety. Right? Death is something we all know as human beings. Brokenness, emptiness. And it's where our stories begin, Paul says. Now that may sound kind of gloomy and dark, But the mystery that Paul is describing in this letter suggests that even this can be good news. Even this can be part of the gospel story. Because we haven't been left alone in that place of death. God himself has chosen to identify, to enter into that place. And it turns out that death is the place where where God begins working his own hidden power in Jesus. Death is the place our stories meet the living Christ. And as we move into verses 4 and on, we see that Jesus goes in to death to rescue us from our deadness so that our stories might be resurrected. Look at verses 4 and 5. 
But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. We could probably say that verse 4 here begins with the biggest but in all of Scripture. What John Stott has called the mighty adversative. But because God is the Greek. But God. Because of his great love, God has embarked on a mission, on a, a desire to rescue us from that place of death. And he goes into death to fashion for himself a people. But before Paul gets to what God has done in verse 4, sorry, in verse 5, he uses all of verse 4 to describe what God is like, to describe his character, to describe his desires. Paul says, if we are a people filled with death, then our God is a God who is filled with with life. He is a God who is great in love. He is a God who is rich in mercy. As one commentator says, our God is a magnanimous lover who longs to enjoy humanity and has taken extreme measures to do so. Let me say that again. Our God is a magnanimous lover who longs to enjoy humanity and so has taken extreme measures to do so. Most incredibly, we're told that God abounds with love, God abounds with mercy, and it's for us. It's for you and I. For disobedient, dead, despairing, anxious, broken people like us. Once we have in view that that this is who God is, this is what he's like, this is what he desires to do, then we can move on into verse 5 and to see how, in fact, he's done that. It says, he has made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead. Let those words sink in for a moment. Right, that's... That's unbelievable. That's saying that what was dead has been joined together in order to be alive again. In fact, it's such an unusual concept. It's such a a strange idea that Paul actually invents another Greek word here in order to describe what happens. And so he says there in verse 5 that God has taken the dead and in Christ he has sune zoe poesin. It takes three words and sort of puts them all together. Sun is a a prefix meaning with. Zoe is life. And poesin means to to create or to work or to construct. And so the idea here is that God enters with us into our death, into our deadness. Pulls us into or together with Christ in order to make out of us a, a new thing, a new living creature. This, Paul says, is my definition of grace. This is gift. This is God exercising that great love and mercy 
he just spoke about. One of the pastors that I used to work with challenged several of us for for a season to try to begin every day with these two verses. To to wake up in the darkness of the morning and to recite these two words, these two verses, to meditate upon them. But because of God's great love for me, God who is rich in mercy is making me alive in Christ even where I am dead. Right? Asking, Lord, what, what place that's dead in me, that's, that's broken in me, that feels lifeless, are you making new? Are you bringing life into? Lord, what is broken in me that you desire to redeem and, and you desire to speak great love into? Where do you desire to to sort of breathe this new life of grace in me? This is the work of Christ. This is what it means to be joined to him. That we move from death into life. That we become awakened to God's life-giving work in our world. And so Christ calls to the dead places in us and says, Be joined to me. Be joined to my spirit of life. Don't be subject to that ruler of the kingdom of the air that keeps you bound, but instead be joined and bound to me, the spirit of life. And so we can see then in these first five verses two chapters described in the story of the church. In chapter one, we were slaves. We were bound to death. Chapter two, Christ joined us to himself in death in order to bring us back, to resurrect us into life. And if we know the story of how God worked in Jesus, then we can probably predict how God is working in the church. Right? What follows death and resurrection? Well, ascension, right? Look at verses 6 and 7. And God has now raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Again, I think the story of the church is is one that's far greater and far bigger ...than most of us imagine. For most of us, the idea that God would even... ...sort of bring us back to life... ...that he could resurrect us... ...that he could make us new people... ...is shocking enough. But in verse 6, Paul insists that God has gone... ...one step farther. That our, our lives, our stories... ...are meant to parallel Christ himself. What God has done in Jesus... ...he is doing in us... And so he says that as we're joined with Christ, not only are we resurrected, but we are also raised up and seated with him in the heavenly places. Somehow, part of who we are now, not just in a future age to come, part of who you and I are gathered this morning together as part of our identity is that we participate in the glory 
in the reality of heaven itself. As John Calvin says, our humanity gets lifted up from the deepest hell into heaven itself. Where we are now seated with Christ. Right? Imagine that in your mind's eyes. It's hard to even get a picture of what that looks like. But those, those words offer a remarkable sense of assurance, right? We've been seated with Christ. We've been offered a place in Christ next to the Father. A place of intimacy, a place of security. A place where we belong in this family of the triune God. We've been seated where the Lord of heaven and earth is reigning from now. And as verse 7 explains, God invites us into that place so that he can boast, so that he can show off, right, the incomparable riches of his grace. In verse 7, I kind of get this idea of God saying to the rest of creation as, as he pulls us up to be with him, hey, look at what I've done. Look at what I've created. I've created the most unlikely group of people to be my own, to demonstrate the the vast amount of grace I possess. So if we don't feel like likely candidates to sit at the right hand of God, well, it's because we're we're not, right? We're, We're only there, we're only being reformed and reshaped because we're broken people, Because God has chosen to delight in in demonstrating his grace upon us. I love what F.F. Bruce, the New Testament theologian, says about verse 7. He says, the church is a society of pardoned rebels. That feels pretty accurate. (laughs) A society of pardoned rebels, but that has now become the masterpiece of God's goodness. Another commentator calls the church the place where God has displayed his trophies of grace, right? The the broken and and dead and and hopeless cases that God has resurrected and caused to ascend through the work of his grace in his life. The church is the place where God is making his boast. We are a people who were once dead. We can identify with that. We can be honest. We can name our deadness. But we are also a people who God has joined with Christ and has brought new life to. And we are becoming and entering into this reality that we're a people who are being raised up, who now have fellowship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit in the heavenly places so that we might be the trophies of his grace. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, I pray that when we reflect upon and remember the story of the gospel, that you were dead, that you were raised to life, that you've ascended into the heavens, that somehow your spirit would help awaken us to the reality that that's our story too. That that's what you're doing in and among us as a people. That that's the hope and the trust we have. 
Lord, thank you that you are operating your great power in and among us today. Lord, would you continue to lead us in worship and humility and gratitude in the week to come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.